If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. They'd have been better off letting him try and escape and just shooting him in the back. I'm not saying it's a very noble thing, but you can't put together a whole court case, which is completely wrong. It, it, it is, you know, it just is. That was Charles Spencer talking about the trial and execution of Charles I. By the time Dudford was built, the original scheme had been declared legal. And that was National Trust volunteer Richard Nix on the 19th century Chartist movement. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Now, what fates befell the men who tried and executed Charles I once his son, Charles II, had taken the throne in 1660? That's the question at the heart of Charles Spencer's new book, Killers of the King. Our book's editor, Matt Elton, met up with Charles to find out more about the story and its characters. In that these people killed a king, I had to deal with the trial and execution of Charles, but I I try and do that as succinctly as possible. Um, But the the, the point is that there's this... uh, after, After the death of Oliver Cromwell... Um, there was a brief uh, period, obviously, with his son, Richard, taking over, who, who was a much more interesting and able person than I'd always thought. But anyway, he couldn't hold it together. And then the tensions between all of the people who were left in power were so great, that, uh, and there was no clear leader after Oliver Cromwell's death, that the British sort of went to default and thought, well, we'll, we'll have a monarchy back, because there was anarchy creeping in. Mm. And they, they needed something that was familiar to bind everyone together. So then you end up with Charles II, literally out of nowhere. He'd given up hope, really, of coming back, and nobody was paying any attention to him, um, apart from a few diehard royalists. But, you know, foreign courts had given up on him, and he was living in poverty. Suddenly being told, um, you know, if, if you concede on various points, such as paying the military, not taking back land that's been confiscated, and, and not wanting vengeance against everyone who fought for Parliament, Mm. then we'll have you back. And he agreed to these terms, came back to a tumultuous welcome. And this is the problem for the regicides, Mm. is that there was sort of 50% of the country who had to pretend they had never really meant it, uh, being parlamentarian. (laughs) and what you mean, yes, exactly. (laughs) So they they had to find scapegoats, and Mm. and the regicides were those. And of course... You know, quite naturally, Charles II wanted the men who had murdered his father, in his view, murdered his father, mm. 
to um, be put on trial. And originally were, the thought was that seven of them would suffer. Uh, and the assumption seems to have been that of those seven, three or four of them would be already dead, such as Cromwell. Mm. And Bradshaw, who was the uh, the Lord President of the trial, uh, but then there was this sort of um, effervescent royalism, really, uh, which 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 became became a real problem for the regicides. And even when they were told that they could hand themselves in, and if they did so within a two week period, they they would not be in danger of their lives. Mm. Um, the king reneged on that. The House of Lords was very keen to get revenge too because several of its members had been executed after the uh, Second English Civil War failed. So there, there was just this thirst for revenge yeah. and a very obvious target. Mm. You know, 60 men roughly. But. Yes. Something that interests me about that is whether there was kind of a genuine popular desire to see this kind of vengeance enacted. Do you think that was something that people wanted? I think there were certainly the really interesting characters, such as Thomas Harrison, who had been um, a very prominent figure under Cromwell until falling out with him, and was known to have been unpleasant to Charles I in his final months. It, it, he was such an obvious target, and also he was, he was considered by many to be a, 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 what we call a religious nutter. And so he was a hated man who was not apologising for anything he had done. So I think there was a, a real excitement when he was the first one to be uh, taken to this terrible execution. Um, but of course, it, a lot of these people were very serious fighting men and they were hard as nails. And um, Harrison showed tremendous courage at his end. Didn't he uh, punch? Yeah, he punched the executioner after he had been hanged and sort of resuscitated and he had been castrated and was being gutted he managed to swing a punch at the executioner which was the crowd thought that was magnificent which it was you know i mean that was incredibly um brave and uh, also it's very clever because it resulted in a very quick death after that because mm. the executioner was so humiliated so yes i think at the beginning there was a thirst for it but but it quickly um dissipated as people got to know Charles II better, and he wasn't this perfect monarch, you know. He was, he was a man who would betray public interests, such as uh, selling Dunkirk to, uh, in many people's eyes to fund his own um, extravagance. So as his stock fell, I think that the, the thirst for the most vicious revenge um, fell away, and also because these men were brave at the end, apart from one, they were very brave. Um, that you know, the way you died was seen as a, a sort of reflection of how in tune you were with God in a way. Mm. So um, they, they did so with an incredible aplomb, really. Talking about the characters of the kings, I suppose, mm. what impression did you get of the two men uh, during the course of writing the book? Well, I mean, I, I suppose, I, I mean, I would have, see, I, I, come at it, I would have been a parliamentarian and um, so I come at it with sort of uh, critical eyes. I come at them. So Charles I, I think I found him to be probably as everyone has, which is a, a very decent human being and a, and a lovely man and, and an intelligent, uh, devout uh, family man, I think we'd call him. And uh, 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 but, but so weak and... and 
always taking the last word of advice, which is not good in a crisis situation <laughs> such as a civil war. <laughs> and then, uh, but obviously, as, as is well known, he died very bravely. And he could have avoided death by uh, conceding on principles, but he didn't do that. So you've got to admire him at the end, however much of a, a mess he made of this last uh, 10 years of his life. And then Charles II, I'd always assumed was just a pleasure-loving, uh, quite an intelligent man, but, you know, ple pleasure-loving one. Um, but he, he showed quite a focus when it came to revenge. I mean, he was still calling for the, the death of those responsible for his father's um, demise right to the end of his life, you know, and sending parties off to the American colonies to track down men there. I mean, he meant it. Mm. And um, in fact, it's been quite fun. We are just doing the illustrations for the book yesterday. And I've been thinking, you know, how do I show Charles II? And we found this amazing portrait of him sitting in great splendor in his throne, looking with a sort of rare steeliness out at you. And you think, yeah, that's the yeah. man. You know, he's got the power he never thought he'd have, and he's going to use it. Yeah. And people who've, who've upset him to the extent of killing his father, they're going to suffer. So, um, heading back briefly to the King's sentencing. Yes. Of the characters who were involved in, in that whole trial, mm. who stands out for you as being particularly, I suppose, influential or committed to that particular cause? Well, there's a very interesting character called Henry Martin, who's one of my, I suppose, essential sort of seven regicides. And he was this uh, scandalous womaniser who had been publicly humiliated by Charles I during Charles's pomp. And he was a, he was a genuine Republican. You know, he, some people were thinking, oh, we've got to do something drastic to end a war that's cost 200,000 lives, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. um, but others were philosophically determined to kill him. And Henry Martin, you know, he was a very, very intelligent lawyer. And he put together the various constructs of the trial. And he thought of the, the name of the body that would uh, face the king in, in the trial. And it was the, basically the good people of England, which is a very clever construct, mm. actually. Because, you know, to take a king um, to, to trial, you had to have something fairly worthy to, to take on the, the crown. And he was very determined, really, to see it through. And uh, obviously Cromwell... I mean, I, Cromwell's hand was sort of everywhere during the run-up to the trial. And obviously there's, there seems to be a lot of feeling that Cromwell was uh, the mastermind. And you, you do see that. But he, and he was the one who was very uh, keen to have the, the key people in place, such as Bradshaw, who was the Lord President, and Cook, who was the, um, what we would call the sort of chief prosecutor, I suppose. And um, so it all in, and Ireton as well, um, Cromwell's son-in-law is this sort of shadowy figure in the background who I think was uh, a sort of Mandelson figure, really, who had a lot of influence everywhere, but didn't want his fingerprints uh, to be shown. Mm. And there were enough See, this is what really intrigues me about this period, and, and, and actually this story in particular. There are so many really gigantic personalities. Um, I don't know other parts of history. I mean, I, we have such, a, of English history, we have such a sort of uh, confluence of really interesting people. 
and they, they tend to be on Parliament's side, actually. Um, and they, they came, a lot of them came together during this unbelievably bold move mm. to put a king on trial for his life. And you've, you've got them, the underpinning of uh, religious conviction, you see. So yeah. that made it all OK. Um, if you, you, you can contemplate killing a king if you believe God's expecting you to do that. And it kept going back to this chapter in the book of Numbers, mm. which basically said, if you want to purify a country that's had terrible bloodshed, you have to spill the blood of he who caused it. So, I mean, we all know with the Bible, you can probably find a verse to suit any occasion. <laughs> but this was a very handy one if you were thinking of killing a king. So it was this particular religious conviction that you think assembled all these kind of strong characters around this cause? Well, I think a lot of them felt they were doing the right thing, and uh, morally, and... Uh, what, what's remarkable to me is when they were put on trial, and even ones who weren't uh, uh, ever caught, they, they, they didn't have, most of them didn't have a personal malice towards the king. And in fact, you'll find in trial after trial, they said, well, I, you know, I'm guilty of what I did, but I, uh, you say I was malicious. I wasn't malicious. Yeah. Uh, they thought they were doing a fine thing for the country, and it was, in many cases, um, unfortunate that the king had to die, but he, they felt he had to. Mm. So having said that, what was their reaction when they found out they were being hunted for, for their decision? Well, some were disbelieving. Um, there, there were some who believed that uh, there would just be two or three or four or five, maybe seven, uh, held to account. And there was this, you know, it all happens, you've got to remember, the restoration happened so quickly that uh, things uh, unravel for the regicides very fast. Mm. Um, so the last military hope had sort of gone before Charles landed. And then it got to a point where it was every man for himself. So you have someone like Edmund Ludlow, who was a lieutenant general uh, for parliament and a very able soldier and also a politician. He ends up um, deciding to have a very close look to see what will happen. He pretends he's going to hand himself in. But he's, he's sickened by seeing his old parliamentarian troops uh, trotting behind Charles at the coronation, etc. He finds that a very uh, difficult moment. And he wisely sits tight. Hutchinson, who's another one of my men, he's a, a Nottinghamshire landowner who was very involved in the trial, but pretended he wasn't at the time of the restoration. He, he grabs his opportunity and goes to the House of Commons and says, look, I, I was young, he wasn't, uh, <laughs> and I had nothing to do with it, so maybe you could forgive me. And they said, yes, you're forgiven. And he was clever enough to get it in writing, the fact that he'd been pardoned. Well, I, 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 he, he's then undone by the fact that the parliamentarians were so efficient, they kept records of everything. Mm. Who had been in charge of the committee to choose the cushions at the trial, down to that sort of detail. And when these books were unearthed, they found Hutchinson was everywhere, and he had been involved in pretty much every day of the trial. And so they marked him down, they basically told him, look, you know, you have been forgiven, but it's not going to go well next time there's a problem. Mm. And um, a lot of them, 28 of them, I think, stood trial about a year and a, a bit after the coronation, thinking that they would be um, forgiven because they'd handed themselves in in time. Others knew, I think, that things were going to be very unpleasant. They were kept in incredibly uh, dark conditions in the tower. Um, close prisoner it was called, where you were manacled the whole time and guarded 24 hours a day with people there and you weren't allowed, none of them were allowed um, legal advice uh, or even pens or paper, you know, you, you, you were kept in 
in a very, very poor condition. Um, and then others ran for it, which was turned out to be the right thing to do. Um, and some got to Europe and some went further afield. Um, three of them ended up in America. Mm. Talking about the uh, conditions for the men who were kept prisoner, how many men are we talking? Um, um, well, I think there were some... I mean, overall, mm. there were some who were actually let out. Some turned evidence and some just were thought actually not to be regicides in the end. But I'd say, overall, um, if you had all the ones who ended up in the Tower of London connected with it, it'd be about 35. It's a lot of men. It is. Yeah. But never more than 20, 28 at one time. That was the big, the big sort of, uh, the lot who had trooped off to go and stand trial together. Mm. Um, but no, I mean, it was... Uh, it was a, must have been terrifying because they didn't know. I, I, you, you look at Henry Martin's letters to his mistress, and they are absolutely a roller coaster of of, uh, of hope and desperate despair. He doesn't. They don't know what's going to happen to them, and and the ones in the tower lived in this terrible fear that the yes, of course, execution was an uh, ever present threat, but that the other option was they may be sent to some hellhole, such as the prisons in Tangiers. Um, and end their days, they're obviously never seeing their family or friends again and living in, I mean, hardly living, you know, yeah. just waiting to die. Um, and so the, 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 the options open seemed to be endless and nobody knew who was actually going to have to get it mm. in the neck. And apart from Harrison, who was clearly going to have to go. Yeah. Some of the accounts in the book of the trials are extraordinary. Um, what would an average trial take place like? How would it take place? Well, the trials were quite tricky because um, the original trial, there were 28 men, and, and, and the, the judges and the, the judges wanted to, to deal with it quite quickly. So they tried to do them in blocks of men, but it wasn't possible because every defendant had a right to object to jurors. So in the end, it, it turns out that they, they were individually tried. And... Um, it was quite clear what result was expected as well. Uh, and, and, have, and these men arrived, they were in shock when they arrived. They had no idea what the charge was going to be. I mean, sorry, they had an idea. They didn't know the specific charge. And because they hadn't had any legal advice, they, they quite sort of logically said, look, you know, we did this on the authority of the highest power in the land at the time, and that was Parliament. Well, that was, that was considered not a defence. Mm. And it was seen as a, um, uh, an even greater offence than, than the one they had done, was to not hiding behind that. And so it was quick. You know, you basically had to say guilty or not guilty to the charge. And they weren't allowed to justify it. And if you said guilty, then that was sort of <laughs> the end of the story. They were sent off. And, and there was a chance Parliament might reprieve them, but it was unlikely. If you said not guilty then you had to prove it later on. And it was very hard to prove because the documents were there with their signatures on. Yeah. And you were guilty of high treason if you just thought about the king's demise. So the fact you had actually signed his death warrant took it several stages beyond that. And they, 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 they were undone by a well-meaning wife of one of the regicides, one of the military officers who was at Charles's death, had kept the death warrant um, the execution warrant, as a sort of proof that her husband was only obeying orders. Well, that's never really worked through the centuries as a defence. <laughs> um, but the thing was, it handed the royalists this unbelievable document mm. with all the signatures and seals 
on it. There's no, you can't, you could say somebody fake your signature, but where would they get your, your signet ring from? You yes, know? yeah. So given that motivation wasn't a uh, case for your defence, mm. um, did they stand any hope of being? The only ones who, the, the only, they, they, stood a, they stood a chance of being, of not being killed and of not having their property confiscated. And actually that was one of the surprises when I was reading, the, um, researching the, the notes, was um, how incredibly important the property side was. Now, of course, I get it that who wants all their property confiscated, but this was an entire family's wealth. It wasn't just the accused. Because men owned the wealth of a family, if the man had his property confiscated, there was nothing left. And, and in fact, Harrison, the only thing he could leave his wife was a Bible. I mean, he thought that was a sort of gift of unimaginable wealth. But, I mean, you had to rely on the charity of friends after that. Mm. And um, so you could sort of, by, by showing genuine um, sorrow and, and, and seeking a pardon, you, you might spare your life. You might just spare your property. But you, you were going to still be in prison for life. Mm. That, you, you, it was such a heinous crime that there was no way around that, really, unless you, uh, one or two of them, did some fairly spectacular U-turns. And um, Inglesby, Richard Inglesby um, arrested one of his fellows and handed him in and uh, managed to get uh, by on that. What was interesting, though, was it was down to personalities as well, and whether people liked you. So, for instance, Henry Martin... Uh, was one of the key people who, in the whole thing, quite clearly. But because people liked him, he was funny, he was a character. He made the House of Commons lively. Um, he was just, he was given uh, life imprisonment and it was pretty relaxed. He, 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 his mistress and children moved in with him. He left his wife at home and, um, and he lived quite a, quite a bearable life mm. for quite a long time. But it was, and others who nobody really liked. There's one of them, Carew, who was, he was considered uh, the wrong sort of chap because he hadn't tried to save the life of his royalist half-brother when he was up for um, uh, capital punishment. And so that, that was enough, really, to, to stop him being saved when it came to a vote. Mm. So it wasn't, it wasn't just on what they'd done. It was whether you were popular or not as well. So when you've got prisoners, the best possible option, you're in a pretty bad <laughs> state. Um, some of the accounts of what did happen to some of the other men are horrible. Yes. Um, were there any that stayed with you among all of this? I really like, I just mentioned this man, Carew. I think he's a very interesting character and I'm sorry there wasn't more time to get into him. So he, he, was, he never wanted to be one of Charles's judges. Uh, quite a lot of people took the very sensible decision to make themselves absent during the trial, because who knew what was going to happen, you know? And Carew was sort of told to fill in for somebody else, which he did. And he was a thoroughly decent man, I think. And um, he knew he was going to be uh, killed in this terrible way because, because of his religious convictions. They, didn't, they, they, were, they were extreme, and, and, and he knew he would suffer. But he had a chance to he had a chance to get away. In fact, Parliament was told he had got away. But you know these these men of great religious belief they they didn't feel the need to run. No, they believed that God would save them whatever happened. And he was a fifth monarchist. Now the fifth monarchist believed that the fifth empire of the world was about to happen, probably in 1666, which is very near. If you're 
on trial for your life in 1660, 61. So they thought whatever they went through, they'd be back within a handful of years at God's right hand, leading his army, and they would have everlasting salvation. And that, that was a very big comfort. Um, it's proven to be a miscalculation. <laughs> but, uh, there we go. <laughs> um, yes, so um, what happened to what happened to him in the end? Well, Carew's one of the ones... He was the second to be executed. Mm. And he was very, very brave. And the, the, the royalists were getting already rattled by the, the bravery these people were showing. Yeah. So they, ha- they just said the only way he could have been so brave was because he was drunk. And it is possible that... I mean, I, I would have taken whatever was on offer, I think... But I think he, he had such a sort of um, beatific charm on the day he died. And, and they, they said they saw miracles after his death. Um, on his estate, uh, an apple tree came into bloom, and it was October when that okay. happened. And then they said they could see his face in the clouds and all that. So you've got to remember that the background of superstition to all this is so huge. Yeah. But I, I think he was incredibly brave and, and sort of solid. And I, I feel very sorry, too. I do... There's two of them who, who really shouldn't have been executed, who were two of the colonels who were on the scaffold when Charles was killed. They really were obeying orders, you know, and they, and they were obeying the orders of Fairfax, who by this stage had sort of gone into a sort of gentleman's retirement in Yorkshire. But it, it was clearly his orders mm. at the time as the military commander that these things should happen. And this is a very touching scene. One of the colonels was basically um, on the list because he had whipped up a lot of hatred against Charles in the courtroom through words. And the other one was just a, you know old-style old army officer just doing his job who was not a, a man of words. And so when they get to their final speeches, the, the one who found speaking a complicated task says, I really haven't got much to say, but my friend will say everything. And it's a very sort of eloquent... Um, description of you know ha- of being condemned for words, not even deeds. He hadn't yeah. signed anything. He'd just literally been there as an officer. Somebody had to make sure it was done. And there's this bit, a touching scene where the two of them are on a, a wagon together and they hug each other just before they're killed. And it's just, you know, you can imagine being up there with your friend thinking, this is really unfair. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's oh not, God. the next half hour is going to be the worst imaginable mm. time. Yes. Know? Um, and I, I do, I find, I've always been somebody uh, who's had a sort of almost childish uh, fascination with uh, fairness. And there is, I, I kept coming across these stories which made me so upset, you know. So, how long after Charles's death did this kind of hunting last for? How long did it go on? Well, Charles died in January 1649 and Doris Lass was killed pretty much straight away. He was the first regicide. He was murdered pretty much straight away after that, uh, within a year. And then the last hunting down of the regicides was still going on nearly 40 years later, when actually there's only one or two left. Um, but they were still hunting in America for the, for the last one or two after they were dead. They didn't know that. Um, so, no, it was, very, it was, it was not... It, it, it wasn't a sort of quick campaign and everyone just lost interest. It went on for ages. It went on for ages. And also, yeah, there were big rewards too. Mm. It was clear from what happened to Downing, uh, who who's the sort of villain of the whole book, really. Uh, Downing, who had started off as an impoverished... He was the first 
uh, he came out of the first class of Harvard ever in 1646, I think, and then went straight. He 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 was in the Civil War, uh, and he was a penniless priest who was scooped up by one of the regicides and looked after. And he ends up turning sides, changing sides and hunting down through the regicides and bringing them in. And he's made a baronet and given a lot of money. And that caused a lot of interest among people who, well, they may have been royalists, but they wanted to get rich and get the king's favour. So a lot, of, uh, the, a lot of the problems that the eight regicides had hiding in Switzerland were from people looking for uh, a big payday, really, that if they brought them in or killed them. You could do either. You could murder them or bring them in as, um, uh, for execution, and you'd get very well rewarded. Mm. And so they were hugely successful in hunting down all these people. They were. You know, the thing is, I, I'd say, so there were 80, 80 regicides to start with, and about 20 of them had died before the Restoration. 13 of them were hanged, drawn and quartered. Quite a lot of them. You see, they were old men. Mm. We're talking about a time in English history where the average life expectancy for a man in 1660 was 38. So by the time of the Restoration, these were men in their 50s, 60s, 70s. And um, so a lot of them just died before they were executed. They were were allowed to die in prison, as it were, Mm -hmm. in great agony. Um, And... Only, if, only really, we don't know all of them because some just disappear. But I, I don't, I mean, what, 20 of them got away, probably? But did they really get away? They had a miserable time yeah. and uh, they lived in terror for the rest of their lives. And I've seen the letters, you know, some of the letters home are so sad. But you see, as you always have to remember with history, these men always assumed something might happen which would allow them to come home. We know that would never, that never did happen. So they, they would leave England and never see anyone of their loved ones ever again. But they didn't know that. They just thought, hopefully just at thought, some point. Exactly. Because yeah. the world was in such turmoil then. You know, the king had been killed and then the, another king had come back. Everything was possible. Yeah. Um, but no, it didn't happen for them. They, they lived miserable lives mm-hmm. in, in hiding. Um, if you could somehow travel back to the period, um, what question would you ask the people involved in this whole, this whole story? Well, I, I'd ask the regicides, I'd ask them... Well, I, it wouldn't be very popular because they're all religiously sort of convinced, but they justified all of this on one verse in the Book of Numbers. And I'd sort of ask them, you know, couldn't you find, <laughs> couldn't you find another verse somewhere saying this is really not, a, not OK to do this? Um, I, I actually, if I was them, if I, if I believed the king had to die, I think he should have, I personally think they should have murdered him. Because the trial is not, I mean, the bottom line is he was a defeated foe mm. who kept breaking his word. And the one thing that doesn't stack up for them, I'm not saying murder is ever a great thing, but you cannot put on trial a king because there is no possibility of doing that in that time so especially a king who you've sworn allegiance to as a member of parliament or as an army officer so they actually chose the one construction that doesn't work and I think they would have been better off letting him try and escape and just shooting him in the back I'm not saying it's a very noble thing but you can't put together a whole court case which is completely wrong it it, is you know it just is That was Charles Spencer. 
Killers of the King, The Men Who Dared to Execute Charles I, is out now, published by Bloomsbury in the UK, and it's also available for the Kindle in the US. You can read more of Matt's interview with Charles Spencer in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this issue, you'll find articles on Joan of Arc, the start of the Second World War, Scotland before the Union, and the Wars of the Roses. You can get hold of our October issue now in all good news agents or as a digital edition. And if you're thinking of taking out a subscription, we're currently offering two years for the price of one to new UK subscribers for a limited time only. Head to historyextra.com forward slash subscribe to take advantage of that. And Charles Spencer will also be appearing at this year's BBC History magazine History Weekend which takes place in Malmesbury from the 16th to 19th of October. To find out more about the festival and to book tickets, please visit historyweekend.com. Now we have a short advertisement break. From the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, The Secret Life of Bletchley Park, comes the story of Dunkirk, told by the last remaining survivors of the harrowing evacuation from the beaches. With fresh interviews, unseen letters and archive material, Sinclair Mackay weaves the personal narratives of everyday people caught up in the absurd epic of Dunkirk, bringing a thrilling new perspective to a well-documented moment in Britain's history. Dunkirk, From Disaster to Deliverance, Testimonies of the Last Survivors, by Sinclair Mackay and published by Orem Press, is available in hardback now. It's now time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. Richard III was killed by two blows to the head and one to the pelvis, new research suggests. Forensic teams at the University of Leicester this week announced that Richard suffered 11 injuries before his death at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485, three of which may have been fatal. But historian Chris Skidmore told History Extra that despite the latest findings, the King's death remains a mystery. He said, The scientific confirmation of the wounds and detailed research indicate that Richard was not wearing a helmet when he died, but we need to explain why this was the case, given that all sources point to Richard riding into his final charge with a helmet topped with a crown. The final moments of Richard III and the consequences of those moments still need to be explained. In other news, conservators at the National Portrait Gallery have uncovered hidden details of some of the most famous portraits of Tudor monarchs. While undertaking technical analysis of the Elizabeth I portrait that hangs in the gallery, a team found a hidden depiction of the former queen wearing an elaborate costume with large wings around her head. The details were almost completely overpainted in the 18th century to create the image we see today. The team also discovered a bug trapped in varnish in the gallery's portrait of a young Edward VI. They believed the beetle could have become stuck during a varnishing treatment in the 18th century. This varnish has now been removed as part of conservation treatment and the portrait can be seen afresh showing previously hidden details such as the boy king's pale eyes and individual hairs and the delicate pinks of his flesh tones. The findings are revealed in a major display now on show at the National Portrait Gallery called The Real Tudors, Kings and Queens Rediscovered. 
Meanwhile, a 93-year-old man has been charged with 300,000 counts of accessory to murder for serving as an SS guard at the Nazis' Auschwitz death camp during the Second World War. Oskar Groening is accused of helping operate the death camp in occupied Poland between May and June 1944, the Associated Press reports. In a statement, prosecutors said he helped the Nazi regime benefit economically and supported the systematic killings. Groening has previously said that while during his time as a guard he witnessed atrocities, he didn't commit any crimes himself. Groening's attorney declined to comment on the charges. Groening is one of 30 former Auschwitz guards who federal investigators last year recommended that state prosecutors pursue charges against under a new precedent in German law. Thanks for that, Emma. The 19th century saw the rise of a national reform movement in Britain, known as Chartism, which demanded a host of democratic rights for the working classes, including the vote. Our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, travelled to Rosedean Cottage in Worcestershire, once part of a Chartist settlement, where National Trust volunteer Richard Nix explained more about the Chartist movement. Tell me a little bit about sort of Rosedean and the idea behind well, the Well, was, well the, the idea behind it was because the Chartist movement was mm-hmm. uh, one of the early movements in the early 19th century that was set up to fight for the rights of the working men. Yeah. Because they were... Uh, in workhouses and they were working in the factories. There was enclosure which had forced them off the land into the cities Mm -hmm. and they could get jobs in the factories. But of course, those jobs were hard-working, badly paid. They were factory masters or factory owners were very um, hard taskmasters. So they they were in very poor conditions and, and of course, they didn't have the vote. So they couldn't vote, they couldn't... uh, elect a member of parliament or anything themselves. So uh, the Chartist movement was set up with, with six aims. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first of which was uh, a vote for every man. Mm-hmm. And they did think about putting a woman in there, but they thought that was even more controversial. So, so they, they dropped that. <laughs> Start easy, perhaps easier. Uh, that's right, yes. And a vote of secret ballot. Yeah. Um, removal of property qualifications for MPs and payment of MPs and then equal electoral districts, and the sixth one was the uh, annual parliament. Okay. Right, none of those were, were uh, put into place initially, but of course, as we know, five say, of them now are. Exactly, yes. Yeah, so the sixth one, I don't think we fancy doing. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> having, having a general election every year, no, that wouldn't work for that. <laughs> um, it was O'Connor, wasn't it? He was the sort Fergus of the, the O'Connor, O'Connor who was the man behind. He was a member of the, of the Chartist movement, and he, he obviously wanted to um, further the rights of the uh, working people. So he thought, well, the way that, that, that they can get more rights and get more um, influence in Parliament is to have, their, have a vote. Yes. And the only way you could get, have a vote was to own some property. So he thought up this scheme, the land company. It's quite a radical scheme, really, well, isn't it? Well, a very radical scheme, yes, mm. for, for, for people in the towns to be able to buy or have or lease leased a property which would then entitle them to a vote. The, the initial scheme was that people subscribed as little as threepence a week mm-hmm. until they had a share or two shares of, of one, 26 shillings. 
so the idea was they, they subscribed for shares, and when they got a share, they were they they were put into a ballot. So you had probably a thousand people mm-hmm. putting putting in uh, a ticket in a in a well a ballot, I suppose. Mm. And uh, if they were lucky, they were allocated a property. Okay. And Rosedean was part of the Dodford and village. Yes. That's right. Dodford was the last one. Mm-hmm. And Dodford was different in as much as by the time Dodford was built, the original scheme had been declared legal. Why was that? Because in effect it was a lottery. Oh, right, okay. And lotteries were legal. Mm. So it was declared as being a lottery. So he wasn't allowed to do it that way. Okay. And in effect, it, it defeated the object in a way, in as much as the only people who could then buy these properties or buy the lease for the properties mm. were people who had money. Yeah. And as you can see from this list here, um, these are the people who went to the uh, the auction. Yeah. For for the lots. They sort of took one hundred and fifty pounds. Uh, yes. It's a they lot were of called, money. It was called a bonus, but in effect, mm. it was a deposit. Yeah. So for one hundred and fifty pounds, you got the house, four acres of land. So really, it was pricing out the, the people. Well, who it was. That's, that's the, that was the have. problem. Mm. That was the problem. And then on top of that, uh, eventually, people did, did actually pay, uh, in effect, what we would call now buying the freehold. Yeah. So this here is number three, William Hodgkiss, was the first occupant of Rosedean. Okay. <coughs> he fairly shortly sold some of the plots off straight away mm-hmm. before developing them. And as far as we know, there were. There were 41 plots originally uh, planned, and I think he sold four of those, so there were 37. Okay. You've got 37 on this list yeah. down here, right? Yeah. Varying in price, uh, the reason for that being that the one who bid the most had the choice of the best plot. Right, okay, okay. yeah. So you can tell that the, the plots gradually uh, get less and less and less in mm. value, so therefore they're the ones that aren't so weren't so appealing or possibly productive. Yeah. And the idea behind having four acres of land and, and a cottage was that the um, people buying the cottages or leasing the cottages were then able to be self-sufficient. This is the idea, or Fergus yeah. O'Connor's idea. Four acres, but grow the crops, be self-sufficient, have enough left over to sell, mm. and then make a little bit of money so that they could pay their ground rent because they were still leasehold and paying the ground rent. Yeah. But when they got here, they found this land wasn't totally suitable for the type of crops. Oh, okay. There was that aspect of it and also the aspect of the fact that um, the people who were coming and buying the cottages or living here uh, didn't have the right knowledge to be to, uh, to be farmers. Mm. They couldn't, uh, they they come from the cities then. Uh, or they were pensioners, as William Hotchkiss was an East India Company um, pensioner. Oh, right, okay. So he had no real knowledge of how to till the land or grow Mm. crops or anything, and most of the other people had had other occupations, which, again, had no experience of growing crops. So it was a bit iffy for a time, but it eventually succeeded in a way in that... uh, Somebody discovered it was excellent land for growing strawberries. Oh, okay. So they used to grow a lot of strawberries. Yeah. Um, 
And we standing in, in Poy would have been the main sort of living space of that's the cottage. Right. It's that's a right. three-room cottage, isn't it? So, it is. Um, on, one, on one floor. So yeah. Can you just talk me through, you know, is this how it would have um, looked, do you think, roughly? Um, um, as far as we're aware, yes. So you've got a, a big dresser at one end. That's right. The, the, this was, came with the cottage and then mm -hmm. the rest of it was supplied by the people who, who leased the, the other furniture. Oh, OK, so you got the cottage and you got the dresser. And that was that was that was it. That's right, yeah. And you, got, you said this, this is the original range. Oh, that's the original range, yes. The fireplaces in both the rooms, the bedrooms are original as well. Yeah. Um, that cupboard there to the left of the range is, is original. Mm -hmm. um, and the floor is, as you can see, it's all the cracked tiles. Yeah. Which, uh, so the, the cottages, do they, do they have a specific look about them, the Chartist cottages, that sort of set them apart from other houses of the time? Well, yes. I mean, if you look at the, if we could look at the outside, it's a bit wet now. So mm. But yes, they're, they're a particular design. Yeah. And, and it's, it's roughly based on a... On a uh, sketch okay. that Fergus O'Connor made, and he had a builder called Henry Cunningham mm -hmm. who actually built it and who actually said that Fergus O'Connor reckoned they could be built for £100, okay. which even then was quite a lot, but Henry Cunningham reckoned they cost £200. Right. <laughs> so if Cunningham is right, then mm. that's another reason why the company got into trouble. Um, but they were all built of very sound, very good materials. All the, the woodwork was made in one place, and one, another of the estates called Lobans. They had a big comp carpentry shop down there. Okay. That was Richard Nix. There's more information on Rose Dean at the National Trust website. And if this has whetted your appetite for Chartist history, then you'll find an article about the movement in our October issue, which, as I mentioned before, is out now. Okay, so that's almost it for this week. Please do join us next time when we'll be talking to Yuval Harari about the entire history of humanity. Make sure you don't miss it. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook? where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. 